Welcome to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Welcome to The Commercial Disco. Today I'm talking to Data61 Chief Executive Adrian Turner. Data61 is obviously the data research arm of our CSIRO, the National Researcher. Adrian joined there about four years ago after a long career in Silicon Valley, returning to Australia to take up that role. Data61 will be three years old this coming July, having merged the former NICTA organisation with a data unit within the CSIRO. It's really an update. I think, on the restructures that have gone on inside Data61 and some of their points of focus right now. I think anyone who's who kind of watches this space will see there's been a huge amount of activity. And Data61 is a kind of a, a horizontal resource that gets plugged in across sort of the deep vertical market areas of expertise of the CSIRO. I started this conversation with Adrian just by asking him to kind of go through what the data research area looked like in Australia when he arrived three years ago and what it looks like now and how Data61 has kind of restructured itself into uh, quite a pivotal role. Over to Adrian. So we established Data61 in July 2016. June 30 this year will be year three for Data61, uh, celebrating our third birthday. There's been an incredible amount of progress that we've made. So not only have we been focusing on new areas of research, but we've also been challenging the whole model of R&D and how R&D happens. So R&D today is a $1.8 trillion global spend. And if you look at other functions inside of organisations, they've all been changed or disrupted through through data technologies but R&D substantially hasn't up until now so you know some of the stats we you might recall we we merged two organizations to form data 61 including students and affiliates uh, the scale is about 1100 people in the time so far as data 61 we've completed north of 500 projects so an enormous volume of work. We've also entered new research areas for the country. So one example is a double down on cybersecurity. So we have approximately 40 projects running in cyber. And another area is blockchain. And Microsoft actually published some data of uh, the most cited publications in blockchain and of those Australia ranked the second country and data 61 ranked the number one research organization in the world ahead of ahead of others just in terms of that's amazing having having the most number of uh, documents um, given it's such a hot area that's quite incredible yeah and and what it demonstrates is our model and how our model allows us to flexibly and fast go after these emerging areas and drive scale. So our mission is to help solve Australia's data-driven challenges. And we'll come back to the biggest challenge, which is I don't think we're making fast enough progress overall in digital and data, but that's the mission. And the way we've organised around it is as a network rather than an institution. So 
We have a single collaboration agreement with 33 of Australia's universities. And at any point in time, we have approximately 60 collaborative research projects across the entire sector with about a third of Australia's ICT PhDs under scholarship in the uh, Data61 network. All right. I wanted to, in a moment, I wanted to talk about this digital innovation report that you released last year. Some very interesting numbers in that. Without wanting to go over uh, old ground, it did, it was quite revealing. Before I do, though, just on the uh, R&D changes that you've talked about, can you just sort of elaborate a little bit on that? You're yeah. sort of talking about the disruption of R&D or just greater efficiencies in R&D. And on the blockchain cyber stuff, is that data 61 picking winners for want of a better term, like saying that's an area that we need to focus on because of the the opportunities or is, is it a kind of a, an organic thing where students are interested in those areas? How does that work? Yeah, so we, we have about 550 researchers on staff in addition to the network of affiliates and students. So we have a mechanism internally where we make decisions about what we invest in, but what we're focused on is areas that can have impact up into Australian industry. So things like cybersecurity, fundamental, there's a, there's a national imperative to be good at cyber, to, to really protect the economy on the one hand, but also it is an emerging industry in of itself. Blockchain, it's earlier, but blockchain has the potential to be as disruptive on industry and economies as the internet and the web, I believe. In, if, if you look at the internet, the first cycle of companies, it was about the web and it was about doing things offline and now doing them online, but substantially the same things. And then we saw the next cycle of companies that included Amazon and others that understood that there's structural change going on. Blockchain will drive structural change through, through the economy. So. It's another one of these horizontal, some people call them general purpose technologies that can feed up into into a vertical segment. What we've done in looking at R&D and how it needs to be different is there's a thing called a technology readiness level scale, which is something NASA developed for space missions. And it's a scale that helps calibrate whether something is it's an idea, whether it's something that's written down in the form of a publication, whether there's something demonstrable, prototype, or whether something is ultimately production grade and it's part of a rocket going to space. And so we've used that TRL framework to get clear on what's our role in the system and then how do you accelerate research through that TRL framework and how do you drive larger scale outcomes and that's, that's what we've organised. So what have we done differently? We've got a business development and commercialisation function that's sophisticated in being able to translate what collaborators need to provide signals back to the research we do. We've got a mechanism that allows us to rapidly assemble research teams around areas we want to invest in or collaborators want us to invest in, or our team thinks is important to invest in. So that flexibility where they don't all have to be employees of Data61 and they actually can be people from all over the world if we draw on the best to solve solve these hard challenges. Then we've got engineering sitting inside of our research program, so research engineering, and we find the most effective 
programs are the ones where there's a 50-50 ratio of researchers to research engineers. Alongside that, another innovation is that we've stood up technology programs. So we just don't have research programs, we have technology programs. And technology programs are focused on that TRL four through six, which is taking research and turning it into a production grade system that we can then partner with others to then go commercialize and scale. And it's really backing ourselves and removing risk for our collaborators to move our research further along that TRL scale so that they can pick it up and then take it the next leg. Okay, so we're going to get to collaboration and that that sense of urgency we were talking about before. Um, Before we do, maybe to frame the conversation, that report last year, the uh, Digital Innovation Report, I think uh, you commissioned Alpha Beta to do that on your behalf. Now, if I'm remembering it right, there were four metrics, digital capital investments, multi-factor productivity, domestic digital industries and digital exports. And if we can hit an OECD average in each of those areas as a, as a KPI, it means 315 billion dollars yeah, right. um, to, to the economy over 10 years, which is an extraordinary number. So we just have to be average. So we've kind of identified problems along the way. One of them is collaboration. So where are the solutions? You're doing your bit and your part of the system, but there are a lot of different parts in the system that are doing their own thing. So how do we address that? So I think there's challenges on both sides of this. So there's challenges on the research side. We've got, in terms of the size and the outcomes, the leading robotics group in the country. Last week, we announced a new robotics innovation centre that's the largest motion capture capability in the Southern Hemisphere. So there's, there's a lot of scale there. 12 months ago, I asked the team to map all of the robotics activities going on in the country. And there's amazing work going on, really smart, motivated researchers and people, except it's all fragmented. And there's not visibility or wasn't visibility across those activities. And I've actually got a diagrammatic representation of that, which I can share with you. But What we did was got all of the stakeholders around the table, all of the groups doing robotics. So groups like DST, QUT, University, UCID, there are a lot of institutions doing great work. And what we've done is we've formed together what's called the Sixth Wave Alliance, which is taking a national view and making sure that we've got visibility, but also in the way that we talk about the robotics capability of the rest of the world, it's really an, an, an Australia-first approach. So on the research side, it's highly fragmented. We're not driving enough large-scale outcomes. We're not linking up. We haven't got, in a particular area, we tend to lack this systems architecture view that says an output of one research project can be in, an input into another moving towards a larger scale outcome. We tend not to link up across institutions to drive larger outcomes. On the industry side, which is the other side of this, we're just not in the game. If you look at the proportion of GDP spent on R&D by businesses relative to others in the world. So the numbers that I've seen is, you know, if we're between 1% and 2%, sorry, in terms of business R&D, we're about 1%. Overall, we're at kind of 1.9 to 2.2% as a country. Our R&D spend is a proportion of GDP. Israel's 4.6%. Yeah. So there's a structural problem there. 
And what exacerbates it is that in other countries, a higher proportion of R&D investment is directed. So that's the industry side now, now if we think about um, the government side. It's directed. So in Australia, 80% of the R&D investment is not directed. So this is our reluctance as an economy to pick winners. Yeah. If you look at the US, if you look at Israel, if you look at other markets, they're up over 75% directed. So they've got a national point of view that says, we need to be the best in the world at this. And it could be robotics, it could be in the future synthetic biology, it could be quantum, it could be, but but for an economy or as an economy to seed new industry, we think these are important areas that we want to be best in. So you've got the research side fragmented, you've got businesses. So our incumbent businesses tend not to be data-driven or underpinned by tech. If you look at the proportion of companies on the ASX that are IT and tech companies, it's incredibly small. I think it's order of magnitude 3%. If you look at the S&P 500, it's roughly 22 or 23%. So that's a function of us as an economy cycling out of commodities and and incumbent industry into new data-driven industries. The problem is... If you look at the tech sector, they spend roughly 20% of revenue on R&D. The top five tech companies in the world in aggregate spend $75 billion a year on R&D, just the top five. If you contrast that, Australia as a whole spends about $30 billion on R&D. So we need to be focused. We need to not only be focused and understand where we have competitive advantage and, and invest more around that, we also need to link into others in the world. And incumbent industry, those traditional industries spend maybe 2 to 3% of revenue on R&D, trying to become digital companies, competing with those companies that are already spending 20% on R&D. It's hard. And we can't just continue to domestically modify international businesses and ideas. We've got to create our own new-to-the-world digital exports, and that's where we fell down most in that Alpha Beta report. We're only 20% of our OECD peers in digital exports. Yeah, that's, that's an extraordinary number, isn't it? It's frightening to me. that, And it's, it's also disappointing because we've got incredible talent if you look at people individually and if you look at groups and teams individually, we just need to lift the scale of our ambition and back ourselves. We've got all the ingredients to create more digital exports and we are starting to see it. So, you know, there's a lot of attention on the Wisetechs and Appens of the world. So there is a class of company that's coming up through the system that's focused on export. Can I ask, I just want to step back just a bit, and this kind of goes to picking winners, but when we talk about, firstly, when we talk about robotics, what are we actually talking about? Like, the, the, I presume there's a lot of segmented uh, technologies that underpin the term um, robotics. Um, and if, if we're good at it, why are we good at it if in our manufacturing sector we don't seem to be pressing ahead with that business investment to, to drive that automation? Like, in, independently, we don't seem to be doing that. Yeah. So we have some of the, if not the biggest, autonomous systems deployments in our mining sector. If you look at 
like a, a Fortescue or a, or a Rio, they're already at scale deployments of autonomous systems. So that's one. Where we're really good is at the intersection of hardware and software. And then if you combine hardware, software, and then machine learning analytics, AI as well, and then securing those systems as well. We've got core capability and trustworthy systems, which is new techniques using something called formal methods to protect systems from being attacked, embedded systems for, from being not, not attacked, but um, breached. So it's the combination, but it's really that hardware software interface. Now, hardware is, it's a scale business. So it is hard to compete from a cost perspective, but the hardware is becoming more commoditized. Specifically where we're focused is not only at that intersection, but a particular class of robots that are focused on being able to navigate in GPS denied environments. So you can imagine dropping a drone into a mine shaft yep. and going places that people don't want to go. And another one is, and this is related, is in hostile and difficult environments. So if you've got a drone that's, that's walking on legs, how do you navigate an uneven terrain and a, and a challenging terrain? How do you continue to be able to move if you lose a leg on one of those robots? How do you self-correct and keep moving forward? So it's hostile environments. And that's a reflection of Australia and, and some of the environments just geographically where we'd want to deploy autonomous systems and drones. But there's lots of applications around the world. Yeah, okay. What about still on robotics, global supply chains? I mean, I, mean, I guess this is across the across the whole the whole system, so not just robotics, but getting getting into global supply chains seems to be the key, whether it's research or product development. That's right. If you look at the structure of the economy, roughly 98% of the businesses are small businesses, and we need more of those to become global franchises. So they'll need to connect into global supply chains. What I didn't mention was um, one of the other innovations that we've introduced in Data61 for this country is a um, challenge and missions program. And about 11 months ago, we started piloting around supply chain integrity as a, as a challenge or a mission. And so what we said was with this model, rather than starting with the research and the research specific problem, we start with a national problem and then we mobilize the research sector around that problem. But we make sure that the research work that's being done is all linked up and coherent towards driving that larger scale outcome. So the first one that we've gone after is supply chain integrity, but for food, food provenance. So being a part of CSIRO, we can draw on the capability in agriculture or help the health and biosecurity team. So the research spans things like isotopic analysis, which, which is analysis to determine the provenance of a food product. We're looking at advanced materials and packaging for food, but we're also looking at information systems and use of things like blockchain technology or whether blockchain could be used. It's still speculative. But in all, there's 34 research projects in that first wave that all come together in a coherent way. And that's a different way of doing R&D in this country. You know, if you look at CSIRO, CSIRO as a whole has addressed some of Australia's greatest challenges in the past, even back to, you know, things like prickly pear in the past and environmental uh, challenges as well. And you could 
think of those in the context of missions. What's different in what we're piloting is taking that problem and then breaking it down into subcomponents to mobilize the entire system around that problem and overlay program and project management to then bring that back up and, and integrate that up into, into a system. So okay. we're focused on it. We've got a couple of areas still to cover. I'm a little bit conscious of time, but sense of urgency. I mean, I guess it's been a bit of a wild ride in innovation, the way it's been kind of top of uh, government agendas and then not so top of government agendas over time. But I guess as a, like if you were to put a baseline in, you'd say we are talking about this stuff much more now than we were when you arrived back in the country. But the urgency is still problematic. When we talk, like we hear a lot, STEM, we hear STEM, STEM, but we don't see numbers increasing dramatically in terms of students going in. And across a bunch of areas, we don't see that urgency. What do we need to do to create that urgency? I think it's a great insight. So I've had this conversation with senior people in the system that who ask, is, is the system working? And how do we know if the system is working? And I think our sense of urgency or our speed is the number one property, emergent property of a well-functioning system. Because in a well-functioning system, you've got near-perfect information flow. So if I contrast it with the US and the Valley, for example, if I was thinking about building a new business, say in food provenance, there's such near-perfect flow of information in that system. I would know who are the other four companies I'd know, who are those CEOs, what are their backgrounds, who are the board members? Who are the investors? What else are the investors invested in? And then I'd make an assessment. Can I take them on? Can I compete with them? Is this a good use of my time or should I go and focus somewhere else? The urgency isn't there in this system. And part of it is we've had 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth. So we don't feel the need, um, although I think that's going to change quickly over the next 12 to 24 months where there will be a greater focus on this country needs to build new industries to create the jobs and the economic growth so, so that that growth continues. The other thing is that as a system, I think right now we tend to be very focused on measuring inputs. So we tend to focus on not, not as much the outcomes and the outcome metrics. They're all inputs that are proxies for outcomes, but they're not necessarily outcomes. So if we give you a hypothetical, if we focus on dollar investment in R&D in a particular category or number of grants in a particular category or even patents, it's very different than new ventures formed, jobs created in a sector, yeah you know, the, the, the scale of exports. I mean, if we look at the proportion of what we do that we export and take to the world, I think the number is of innovation active firms, which is roughly 48% of our firms, those that make products, only 8% of those are taking those products to the world. So that says roughly 3% of Australian businesses are exporting a new to the world innovation. I, I yeah, I think that's a problem. Yeah, I think that's a problem also. Uh, and I don't think you'd find uh, too much arguments around the uh, innovation system. I'm going to f- finish up with the uh, industries of the future and 
try and finish on a uh, on a positive note with that. But before, mm. I, and maybe this feeds into it anyway. But uh, I have to ask you about artificial intelligence, ethics frameworks, and the work you guys have been doing with government on developing ethics framework. So I just kind of. As a general statement, kind of interested in, in how the progress of that report, but also, like, does Australia get a say in this? I mean, do we get a say anyway? Like, we, when we look at Google and, and Facebook and the operation of their algorithms, I don't think they're going to get on the phone to Australia and ask us, what do you think about this and what do you think about that? So I think this is a really important conversation for the country because it's actually going to go to the heart of what kind of country do we want to be and the choices we make around things like artificial intelligence and the regulation and ethics of AI will influence the kind of country that we are. I'm really optimistic that there are new industries to be built within Australia that will become global industry and global businesses. I'll give you a concrete example just in and around the ethics of this. If you think about our culture of being egalitarian and we really value a fair go, for people. We have great cultural values that if we can map those into the way that we deal with AI and build tools and systems to be able to quantify some of, some of the ethical trade-off decisions that algorithms may be making, that's an exportable opportunity for the country. Uh, if I think about, you know, I mentioned before food provenance and traceability, Well, there's a biosecurity and food safety dimension to that. And I think Australia has done extremely well in terms of protecting our flora and fauna and environment and the food, the food chain. We want to command a premium for our exports and our ability to trace food. That's an exportable industry. If I think about the fact that we're a very compliant culture, you know, Deloitte pegs the regulatory drag on the economy at $249 billion annually. So if we can automate aspects of compliance using natural language processing and applying reasoning to law and legislation, that represents an export opportunity. I think the number in the US, according to Deloitte, is about a trillion dollar drag on that economy. So yeah, another one that comes to mind is around risk risk quantification and kind of new modes for for quantifying risk. I think there'll be the emergence of new financial instruments like micro insurance policies that will be used to collar risk in all sorts of places that it's not used today. Great opportunity for Australia, export opportunity. So, and I take, look, we're having this conversation now, we're not talking futuristic, we're talking these opportunities are insight. Absolutely. These opportunities are here and now. Okay. To finish up, I guess what's exciting now, what are you optimistic about? Industries of the future, how are we, uh, how are we looking? Where are those industries going to come from? I'm really excited right now on several fronts. So if we think about blockchain, so we just hosted together with the ADC, the Australian Davos Connection down in Adelaide and Premier Marshall was down there across the two days as well. The first conference of its kind globally, 400 people, 400 delegates from 33 countries. We had the Prime Minister of Serbia beam in, very senior people of countries around the world that are pushing boundaries on their own regulatory environments to accommodate these new structures and really be 
be on the front edge of that. I'm really excited about machine learning and AI and its ability to unlock new value. I think there tends to be this narrative around yeah, machine learning and AI will will automate things and take jobs, and I just think that's a blunt, you know, it's a blunt response to a technology wave that's happening with or without us. And if we get ahead of it, we can create new industry and unlock new sorts of value. And, I mean, I'll give you an example that's it's not a for-profit example, but it highlights new value, is we've teamed up with an Australian production company called Finch that they do Chef's Table and Jiro Dreams of Sushi. They came to us with an idea and said, well, how would we go about giving animals rights for appearing in TV commercials and films? Right. Simple idea. So it turns out that you can apply computer vision to automatically look at a film or a commercial and go, well, that's an African elephant, that's a Siberian tiger. And what they've done in the space of four or five months is convinced David Attenborough to front it, the United Nations to administer the funds, and we were in New York for the launch of this not long ago. By year three, this will generate $100 million of royalties from marketers and film companies that will go back to protecting the habitats of the animals that were appearing. So that's new value that wasn't possible before. That's such a great story too, isn't it? Adrian, on, on that note, Adrian Turner from Data61, I wanted to say thank you very much. Um, no doubt we'll be talking more about this uh, in the coming months and years. That's all for now. Thanks, James. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy and reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.